0: I want to thank all of you for your presence today. Our young people, children, now going up to their um, to their work on the fourth floor. So great to have them with us too. And uh, I hope that uh, those of you who are here have uh, were handed a copy of the uh, the sheet of scriptures that uh, is available to you. Holy longing, grief, and joy we are in the as has already been well let me before i say anything else uh, I, I first of all want to simply um thank so much kyle for the beautiful message last week which is the our first uh celebration of advent on need and love and just uh just wonderful in leading us into a meditation on that and we're now in our second Sunday of the four Sundays of Advent. It's this time that's devoted to the beginning of the greatest turning point in all history of humanity, the time when the creator of the universe, the entire universe, the God who is so great that God, by his love, can care for the very small, from the, I really mean very small, the subatomic particles to small little things like us human beings to, uh, to small galaxies as well. It's the time when that wonderful, loving God chose to give us humans a vision of God's own face in a human being so that we could recognize God a face that we could know, that we could recognize as our own, as one of us. until we celebrate the, the advent, that is the coming, the incarnation of God among us in Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah of Israel. Jesus is the one who is truly human. Jesus is, who is the one who is also truly God. Now just saying those few sentences, that's a lot. Just in those things that I've said, it's already more than what I, at least anyway, can grasp. It pushes my imagination. It pushes my vision. It pushes my, my love, my commitment beyond what my mind can actually reach. But I'd have to say that in Jesus, as we see him through the Gospels, we're certainly given an aid for our imaginations— and for our spirits to reach out and to reach even beyond their limits. We've said this before, but but it's maybe a good thing to emphasize once again. We're, you know, we're, we're not told a single word about how Jesus looked physically or the timber of his voice or or whether he had a thick shock of curly hair or was, as one should be, properly bald. So... <laughs> We have not a word about whether he looked athletic or maybe he was bow-legged and stooped. We hear the content of his voice, but not the sound. And so as we're drawn into those crowds around him, but can't quite see through the crowds, we tend to think of Jesus as like ourselves. Maybe he's Chinese. Or from South India? Or is he a tall Sudanese man? Or like the Incas of the Andes? Or a Gaul from the south of France? Or or some mixed up mix of modern nations? Or who knows? Maybe a Hebrew from ancient Jewish style. He's a human. And is part of human life. Your life. Whoever you are. My life. We cannot fence this human off from ourselves as humans. That in spite of the powerful tools that we in the modern world have developed, the tools of history and culture and language and modernity and secularism, all of these things that we regularly use to relativize anything and everything in the past. In our Advent meditations this year, we're continuing the journey that Julie Schwartz started us on in our congregational retreat. Remember that getaway retreat on the island of Manhattan? Uh, We're focusing on the human experience of longing, holy longing. And each week we're reflecting on that longing in terms of one of the traditional themes of Advent in our own uh, idiosyncratic order. We're going love and then joy and then peace and then hope. But each one is joined with an interacting experience that helps give profile and clarity. Last week, uh, Kyle's theme was need and love. Today, it is grief and joy. Next week, power and peace, and then the fourth week of Advent, loss and hope. Love. This morning we've already heard the readings from Luke's gospel but of Mary's song praising God with an for inter- the revolution that God that has already brought about by beginning this new story last week's pregnancy. Just just a line or two from it, from Luke one fifty two and fifty three that's on the back side of your, your sheet there. He pulled down the mighty, the high and mighty from thrones and humbled people he raised on high. He filled hungering people with good things. Now, Mary's very existence and her situation in society tells us that this celebration of what has happened, as she expresses it, is also a longing for those things yet to happen. There's a focus on a true reality that exists in tension and in contrast with the kinds of reality played out by the power structures of the Roman Empire and its puppet governments, and it goes on and on after that time as well. Just a few months later, as Luke tells us the story, Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, would prophesy... About what was happening in his newborn son. This is in Luke chapter 1 verses 68 and 69. Blessed is the Lord the God of Israel. For he visited his people and brought about their redemption from slavery. Notice that language loaded from the the Old Testament. He visited his people. God coming to his people brought about their redemption from slavery. Echoes of of the exodus. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, the son of David. uh, Zechariah lives that life of holy longing. He sees and knows a reality that's yet in process, yet to be lived out, a reality that gives direction and purpose to everyday life. It's something... To be desired, desire is certainly a part of longing. It's something to be more than that, longed for. We've heard the words of the angel to the shepherds at Jesus' birth, that you heard just read uh, just just a moment ago. We we know them so well sometimes that it's hard to feel their power. Luke chapter two verses ten through fourteen. Don't be afraid. Look, I'm announcing good news for you. A great joy, our theme today, a great joy that will belong to all the people. Because today, a Savior was born for you, who is the anointed King, the Christos, the Christ, Lord in David's city. Notice the echoes of things that we heard from Zechariah. And this is the sign you'll recognize. You'll find a newborn wrapped up tight and lying in a, and you know, that manger, that feed trough. Suddenly there was a throng with the angel, the sort of army that belongs to God's realm, praising God with these words. Glory in highest realms belongs to God. And on earth, let there be peace among humans, the focus of God's favor. Now, Luke plunges us right into the paradoxes of loss and limitation and grief in this story. Within which the joy and power and freedom of God's deliverance is revealed. This is the human situation. Here's one of the greatest events of all time and imagination, but it happens, as we've usually noticed, not among the, the influencers, not among the change makers, not among those who run things and have resources to do what they want, to control economies or cross boundaries with armies or build spaceships. The angels talk to shepherds who do not have a single like on their social media. They have no voice. Heaven's army comes not to overwhelm, but to sing. To sing of peace and of God's desire, God's longing, God's favor toward his human creatures. The great one who is born here, the one who is Savior, the one who is anointed king, the one who is Lord in David City, the very embodiment of God visiting his people, as Zachariah said, that supremely great one that's a little newborn human wrapped up tight in the phrase that used to be used all the time in swaddling cloths and lying, of all places, as you know, in a feed trough. That one feed trough by itself embodies the whole structure of power and poverty, loss and grief, that besets so many people in this world's story of how things work. This is glory in highest realms, according to the angels, coming among us. Glory beyond all the galaxies and space races and arms deals and corporate takeovers. This is what the glory of the universe looks like on our construction of planted earth it's what god's glory makes of our glory grants god who could choose any manhattan tower he wanted or the palace of any emperor or sheik that god of glory and love and peace god chooses A feed trough. God comes, a newborn human, wrapped tight and lying in a feed trough. From the human side, what a paradox. Oh, I play on it all the time, the paradoxical character of it. There are so many better palaces or nicer resorts that I would have chosen. Such a stupendous event. It was such a backward time, too. They couldn't even go out on social media. But in reality, I mean, if you'll pardon the expression, real reality, lasting reality, God's reality, it's just simply the obvious choice. It's the choice in the long, gracious work of God. God chooses a feed trough as the center of a great joy for all people. God comes not in judgment or destruction, but allowing humans to be human coming among humans in a way that God's favor can really come upon them. Every single choice that God makes here in this story challenges the entire structure of power and wealth and meaning and the definition of success that we humans build for ourselves. But it woos us toward a different vision rather than blasting us toward it. Now, we love to build build Caesars and to build up Caesars. God chooses a feed trough. Caesar is gone and every Caesar will go. But the love and joy in that will last through eternity. That's the holy longing. Longing is profound desire, but more than simply desire. It's desire for something good, often colored by the sense that something is holding us back from it. Maybe we think of something past, or something future that blocks us. It's the sense that the present may be good in many ways, but it can't be all there is. It's not good enough for real life. Maybe it's something we've lost and we long to regain, a lost glory, a lost meaning. Maybe it's something that we hope for, something that we sense is missing. Sorry. Maybe it's something or someone that would make life fulfilling and whole. We long for it. We long for them. We long for that wholeness of life. But as a group, <laughs> we, we humans are, are short-sighted. We're enthralled with power and visible glory that can be used and manipulated. We hurt each other and marginalize each other and use each other and destroy each other at an alarming rate. Even our good deeds so often are valued for the praise they'll bring. Our brokenness and our sin entangles us and distorts our judgment and corrupts our deepest longing. We're even smart enough to recognize this on our own, but we fail again and again in overcoming it. We long for something better. So obviously our longing is not simply always pleasant. The fact that it is so, that it so often carries this sense of loss or unfulfilled hope means that it's often entangled with grief, as we've already seen in the stories. Grief is embedded throughout the human story, just as it is in the story of Jesus' birth, Jesus' ministry, Jesus' death, But Jesus comes to go to the center of human life, and grief lies at the heart of our human sense that things are not as they ought to be. We all experience the grief of life in many forms, but often with radically different intensities. We know grief at our losses of things and especially of people that are dear to us, and of course, especially in this time of pandemic. We know grief at our own failings, grief at our society's failings, on whatever scale, from a family to the, the whole world. Grief at all, that, at all that something as impersonal as a pandemic has all that it has done to us and can do to us the way it takes away people who are dear to us, breaking off face-to-face interactions with people that we love, the way it can ruin jobs and businesses so their plans and dreams are destroyed, the way it can end career choices or limit them, the way it can mess up years of schooling for our kids. But of course, it's not just the pandemic. We're vulnerable to grief and loss on every level of our physical and emotional lives. There's not a single person here who does not share some part in this this human experience. Even in the beauty of Christmas, even when the angels sing about the birth of a great joy, there is the unspoken grief that this child of wonder is so impoverished in our world that his parents have nothing better than a feed trough for his bed. The song of the angels then is echoed, Luke tells us, years later when Jesus approaches Jerusalem for Passover. It's the Passover that we know as the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus intentionally enacts the prophecy of Zechariah, of the humble king who arrives, it's another advent, riding on a donkey colt, Luke 19, 35 and 36. The people recognize the prophetic sign and they join the disciples of Jesus in spreading their cloaks on the road to Jerusalem to pave his way as king, as it were. So Luke tells us, as our text says, Luke 19, 37 and 38, since he was already approaching the descent to the city from the Mount of Olives, the whole throng of disciples began joyfully celebrating so as to praise God with a great shout for all the signs of power that they saw. They began singing, Blessed is the one whose coming is the king in the name of the Lord. In heaven let there be peace and glory in highest realms. Here is a throng of disciples full of Advent joy and longing. They long for the much-delayed fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy of a coming king. And here comes the king. Right here, if we were there, in our time, we see our longings fulfilled. They take up one of the great songs of ascent, that the pil- that pilgrims sang as they approached Jerusalem, Psalm 118. And Luke lets us hear, just he doesn't have much space, but lets us hear a part of verse 26. Blessed, that is Psalm 8, 118, verse 26. Blessed is the one who's coming as the king in the name of the Lord. But then when Luke also refers to their shouts of joy for all the signs of power that they saw, He makes us think of the rest of the psalm, Psalm 118, wonderful, beautiful psalm that was always regularly sung, the psalm of God's triumph over his enemies. Let me just read some of the verses from Psalm 118. With the Lord on my side, I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I think about what I would be thinking as I sang this song with a king coming into the city. What would be on my mind? I'm not sure it would be crucifixion. I don't know how you feel, but I think I'd be going in other directions. With the Lord on my side... I do not fear. What can mortals do to me? The Lord is on my side to help me. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. All nations, that is, all Gentiles, surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. The Lord is my strength and my might. He has become my salvation. There are glad songs of victory in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. That's just part of the psalm. The crowd of disciples was filled with longing, longing for victory, for a victorious king. They sang and they shouted and they led their procession toward the temple for the feast of deliverance. They were ready for the king to defeat enemies and they were ready to shout victory, to purify the temple of foreigners and to restore glory. But Jesus sings the same song, but when he comes to the brow of the Mount of Olives and comes into view of the city and Sees that city of Jerusalem as he hears that same psalm, he heard and he knew something very different. He was filled with grief and began to weep, as Luke tells us. This is Luke 19, 41 to 44. And when he got near enough to gaze at the city, he wept over it, saying, only you recognize this very day, even you, the things that lead toward peace. But right now, they've been hidden from your eyes because days will come when your enemies will raise a barricade around you and they'll encircle you and they'll close you in entirely. And they'll smash you you and your children within you. They won't leave one stone on another within you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God, that same idea that Zechariah had spoken of. Jesus is filled with longing, just as the crowds are, but he longs for the people to know their own God That God who chooses the feed trough. Jesus grieves for the blindness of the desire for battle that keeps people who should know God from being able to recognize God's ways and see the things that lead toward peace, toward shalom. Again, the paradoxes are profound, just as they are at Jesus' birth. That's what makes Advent a time that seeks seeks not simply longing. All of us can feel that, but holy longing. A longing shaped uniquely by the love and grace of a God who shows himself in that child in the feed trough. In that king who weeps in the midst of a throng of praise and power. What makes the difference is that great Advent theme of joy. What is the joy that Jesus sees, that Jesus brings? What is the joy <laughs> that I seek, that I long for? Joy is a challenge. Now, of course, it has many sides, and we celebrated some of them this morning. It's wonderful to think about all the range of joy. But especially in the middle of a time and a world of so much grief, as we live within and through this pandemic, joy is a challenge. But it is the joy that empowers the longing That woos me into the life of God. Think about this famous passage from Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 12 verses 1 and 2. The writer says, Since therefore we have such a great cloud of witnesses all around us, Let's take off all that weighs us down along with the sin that so easily entangles us. And let's run with endurance the race that we struggle, in which we struggle to compete. Gazing ahead at Jesus, the one who started our life of faith and who brings it to completion, he's the one who, for the sake of a joy, that lay before him, endured a cross, disregarding its shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus moves our longings, our desires for joy. He moves our longings for that joy into a far bigger picture than we're usually comfortable with. You are part of the life of God. And unless your joy is fed and enriched from that life, it's a joy too small. Too small for you. Too small for life. All the little joys of life draw their real power from that great joy, that gracious love toward which we race, as the writer to the Hebrews pictured it. Jesus knew it. He lived it and he calls us into it. When Jesus was talking with his disciples on the night before his crucifixion, just think of that. This is the night before his crucifixion and he knows that that crucifixion is going to happen. That Just think of the Grief, the trauma, the horror, the shame, just the sheer pain of a crucifixion. And he's talking to his disciples, and he's through them he's talking to us. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about something, and so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said a little? In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Very truly, I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has grief because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. Then look further down. An hour is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You'll leave me all alone, yet I'm not alone, for my Father is with me. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. We focus on Advent year after year because it's so hard to take in. Like these words of Jesus are hard to take in. Jesus never turns away or denies or sugarcoats the grief and difficulty of human life. It is a real part of what real human life is. But it is never all just as success and praise and power are never all. A profound part of Advent is the sense of loss, of unfulfilled hope, of grief that leads us to long for true, fulfilling joy. Joy that lasts, joy that's real, Joy that tells us the truth about our own life intertwined with the life of God and God's loving grace. Choose the feed trough. Choose joy. In this world, you will have trouble, Jesus said. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Amen.